0: Hello, 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 and welcome to hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Anthony R. Green, who is a co-founder, associate artistic director, and composer in residence of Castle Verskins, KUS for short, and a current fellow at Berlin University of the Arts. And we'll be talking about his passion for contemporary art. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for being here.
1: Hello. It's so great to be here.
0: I'm excited because it's through Francesca McNeely, who is a past guest on the podcast. I believe her episode is called Soul Sisters of the Dark and Twisties, which we certainly are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But from that, so she's basically said, you know, Anthony would be a great person to have on the podcast. I was like, okay. So I just contacted and you're so quick to respond. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Ha <laughs> And it was great. So then after that, then I was just looking through your works, just searching for more repertoire for my quartet to play and came across Chance, which is, as you say, is your one hit wonder. It's my one hit
1: wonder, but I love it so much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's great. And so we're programming that on our upcoming concert, which I'm really excited to play. And you said it's based on Bernard Herrmann's music. So that was the main composer for Alfred Hitchcock movies. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't say it's based on his, music but it definitely formed this spark in my head when my composition teacher said you know what you should listen to bernard herman and then all of a sudden i wanted to write for strings
0: yeah i know that in the past you said that you were influenced by psycho specifically in this piece and yes. you can certainly see it in the music as well we have a lot of down bow quarter notes dot dot that, then yes. yeah
1: extremely dissonant extremely dance like just like psycho
0: <laughs> yeah no it's great just living out some of that fantasy that i am not able to do in a string quartet oh yeah yeah
1: definitely and also 2020 was kind of a psychotic year so it must be a little bit therapeutic to play this
0: piece <laughs> i didn't even put that together but i think you're absolutely right
1: <laughs> <laughs> now you will
0: yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> all the angst comes out yes <laughs> well anyway so i'm really looking forward to performing the piece perfect we're actually recording a bit ahead of time it's now the end of december which marks kwanzaa so mm-hmm. i'm good i'm panicking i might say this well, wrong don't
1: panic <laughs> Are you trying to say Hedi Za Kwanzaa?
0: I was going to but I got nervous. (laughs) That's fine.
1: It's really okay. I mean, if you haven't said something before, then of course you're going to get nervous saying it for the first or second time. But it's really easy to say Hedi Za Kwanzaa. Happy Kwanzaa.
0: Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about that tradition? Because if I understand this correctly, it's not necessarily a religion, right? It's more of a celebration of a culture. Exactly. So
1: Kwanzaa it's more of a philosophical
0: celebration than
1: anything. It was created by Maulana Karenga in 1966. And for those of you listening who were alive in the 60s, you may have remembered this horrible riot in the LA area called the Watts Riots, which basically started when these cops arrested these two young black men and physically abused them. And that started this whole series of riots that lasted for quite some time and got quite a bit of media attention. Bayard Rustin, who was Martin Luther King's right-hand man, went down to Watts after the riots and interviewed some of the people. And they said the Watts riots got the mayor and all of these politicians to look into our neighborhood because we've been shouting about police brutality and all of these horrible conditions in our neighborhood and no one paid attention. And these riots made America pay attention. And it was a really horrible incident, but also one of these seminal incidents for black history. And after the riots, All of these Black leaders wanted to bring back a sense of unity and community. So Dr. Maulana Karenga said, we need to create a holiday that celebrates Blackness, basically. And he got together with this committee and thought about a way to do this after Christmas and follows the seven days between Christmas and New Year. So it ends on January 1st. And each day asks the people who celebrate Kwanzaa to reflect upon a principle. There are seven principles or Nguzu Saba, which means seven principles in Swahili, and each principle is one tenant that is supposed to be part of this overall philosophical movement and blanket that wraps the black community together.
0: That's pretty great. And forgive me for some of my ignorance, but I mean, you don't have to be of African descent to celebrate Kwanzaa, right? I mean, I could celebrate Kwanzaa. Definitely.
1: What I like to say is that the original intentions of Kwanzaa was for Black people to have a sense of unity and pride in their Blackness. This definitely comes because media and society and history books and all sorts of other entities don't portray black people in the most positive light or with the respect that they deserve. So this celebration definitely started for the purpose of bringing back that joy and pride for black people. But yeah, you don't have to be black to celebrate community because these principles are super universal.
0: Right. Next year, I'll start because <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And please, yes. Other than just reflecting on each of these principles each day, are there any particular celebratory acts that happen during Kwanzaa?
1: Well, there are certain rituals that you can follow. So there is a kinara, which is a candle holder that holds seven sticks. And you're supposed to get red candles and green candles and one black candle in the middle. And you can light the candles every day. And then you can have some props like vegetables and fruit and corn and stuff like that and they're supposed to be symbolic of celebrating children and fruits of your labor and gifts and stuff like that in the harvest but all of this is not necessary. At least for me the bigger purpose of Kwanzaa is to reflect upon these principles. I personally like to reflect on how I used these principles throughout the previous year and how i can use these principles in the upcoming year yeah i think that's the most important thing
0: exactly okay well thanks for enlightening me on kwanzaa yeah my pleasure shall we go on to the spitfire questions yes Mozart or Beethoven?
1: Beethoven, hands down. When I was growing up, I never really liked Mozart. And I started to get more into Mozart as I got older and studied some of the later works. But yeah, Beethoven, hands down. Always loved Beethoven. Always loved the genius and the sound world and the wit.
0: Yeah, interesting. No, it's funny. You basically stole my personal answer. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like it's heresy to say, but I also, in my youth, didn't like Mozart. Or I thought he was like, what's the big deal? Like, yeah. there's Beethoven right over there. I'd rather go to right? there. <laughs> okay. Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Ooh, that's really hard. Don't make me choose. I
1: would actually choose Shostakovich only because of the Lady Macbeth of Midsensk. And I have to say, while I love Prokofiev's big works, there's still something so epic and so... So black sheep about Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk that I'm immediately drawn to it. Also, Shostakovich is one of a slew of composers whose last piece was for viola, and I am a big viola fan, and that viola sonata is particularly incredible. Yeah. I also think that he just wrote better string quartets and... But Prokofiev wrote better piano music and I'm a pianist, so... But I'm still gonna say Shostakovich.
0: Shostakovich did write the
1: Preludes and Fugues. Yeah, no, they're good. But Prokofiev, he was a pianist and he just knew how to make the instrument pop in a way that Shostakovich just didn't. But Shostakovich...
0: Wasn't Lady Macbeth the defining piece where Stalin was like, no, right? Wasn't that the piece? I
1: think that was the piece. Yeah, it's extremely controversial.
0: Yeah, that basically Stalin saw the performance of this piece and then denounced Shostakovich... where then Shostakovich from then on was just scared to ever write, even though he stayed in Russia or the USSR at that point. Exactly,
1: yeah. It's very risque, extremely risque. And I think there's quite a bit of symbolism in the opera. And from that point on, he did put other types of symbolism in his piece, but he really had to hide it under this guise of nationalistic music. Right. And he did it very well.
0: (laughs) Yes, he did. (laughs) Netflix or video games?
1: Video games, hands down. Especially the past couple years, I don't think Netflix has been producing stuff that I really like so, so much. And Netflix, I think, is a little bit different here in the Netherlands than it is in the United States, because sometimes my friends in the States will say, oh, you should watch this, it's on Netflix, and I'll look it up and it's just not here. Oh. Yeah. But my brother just recently gave me this NES original Nintendo Entertainment system console that has about 4,000 original games just preloaded on it so I can just sit down and play those games all day.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's (laughs) just been your way of decompressing. Yes,
1: I haven't been doing it as much as I want to just because I have so many commissions and other projects to do. But when I do get some downtime, I do like playing those video games. Okay.
0: (laughs) Basil or cilantro?
1: Basil hands down. I'm one of those people that hates cilantro. I have that gene that makes me think that cilantro tastes like soap. Here's the thing with cilantro. I've eaten so much of it that at this point in my life, I can now take it in little bits, even though I know it's cilantro and I would rather it not be there, but I can at least eat a little of it now.
0: So you've adapted. (laughs) Yes, a little bit, but basil, hands down. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry that you have that gene. It's one of my favorite herbs. I would be that person's like, here, eat all the salon. Oh, no. Uh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? I would say Star Wars.
1: I'm not the biggest Harry Potter fan, and Lord of the Rings never really got into it. But Star Wars has the cutest of the
0: cutest robots. Yes, yeah, they do. The droids. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Okay, yes. and it's nothing to do with the music necessarily, or is it? Yeah, not
1: necessarily. I just really like the Ewoks as well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <Dude. laughs> <laughs> Okay, symphony or chamber music? Chamber
1: music, oh my gosh. I can actually live my life without hearing orchestral music, even though I love certain orchestral pieces. My favorite orchestral piece is Shoro Number no. 12 by Hector Villagoloche, and it makes me cry every time I hear it, every single time
0: but chamber
1: music all the way.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Coffee or tea? Tea.
1: I drink coffee and I get a headache. Oh! It's really sad. It's not even from the caffeine. I think it's just because of this point in my life where I drank all of this coffee to stay up for 48 hours and at the end of that time period I could feel my heart palpitating and I didn't want to eat and yeah, it was really bad. So I think I have this weird physical trauma associated with coffee, but I love the smell of coffee. My partner, like grinds coffee practically every day and I love that smell but with tea, for me there's just so many different types of varieties right? You have the real tea, you have the teasans you have the green, the black, the white, the reds you have the rooibos, you have the fruity teas, you have the herbal teas you can mix them all up, you can have tea infused cocktails, so tea is just super versatile and one of my favorite teas is lapsang souchong, which is just so rich and it has this unique depth of flavor, so yeah I'm a tea person that was like
0: maybe (laughs) the best way of selling tea I've ever heard because now I just want to drink I love tea too that would be my answer as well and I would just I want to drink all the tea now
1: Yes, yes, yes. And when I was living in Boulder, I took a tour of the Celestial Seasonings factory. And they have this room where they keep the mint tea. And it's the journey, right? Everyone talks about the mint room. And when they open this door, this amazing scent and feeling just wafts over your body. And I just want to stay in that room all day composing just to see what would happen.
0: (laughs) can you write a grant to do so and then oh my
1: gosh i should it's so great because if you stay in that room your sinuses clear up you just become a whole different person it's amazing
0: that would be amazing and also then you could get a sponsorship
1: (laughs) from celestial seasonings (laughs) i'm on
0: it for you All right, you know, this might be a different way of rewording this, but the question is favorite practice room. So I don't know if you want to say it as a pianist or if you want to say like a favorite composing room, but maybe now that I'm saying that, maybe the tea room. Is- <laughs> well, I can put on my pianist tag.
1: It's really hard to say. So when I was younger, I used to go to Apple Hill Chamber Music Camp. And in the main barn, when you enter the main exit and you take a left and you're walking towards the kitchen, you go all the way to the end of the corridor, there is this big room that's carpeted and it has a beautiful grand piano and this amazing view. And I remember hearing this wonderful pianist, her first name is Gisela, and she was practicing Practicing the Ravel trio in that room. And that was such a great memory. And then I would be in that room practicing my Martinu and my Mio and my Bach. And that just gives me all the feels. So I will say that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But the Ravel trio, man, that is, Mm -hmm. I have a very deep spot in my heart for that piece. Favorite professor shout out? Oh,
1: I would say Dr. Amlin because he is one was my first composition teacher and I wrote chants under Dr. Amlin. He is such a sweet man. He was also my first music theory teacher and taught counterpoint like an amazing person. And he was just so supportive and positive and enthusiastic and not overwhelming in any type of way and super quirky but in a way that makes
0: everybody love him. Sure. <laughs> Most inspired musical hero of any genre?
1: Ooh, all right. So I would have to say Ed Bland. So he is a Black composer who passed away, unfortunately, in 2014. But he was also a prodigy clarinetist. And he was a filmmaker, and he was a clarinetist in the Army. And when he got out of the Army, he used the GI Bill to study at various different conservatories in the Chicago area. And created what he calls urban cl- Classical funk. And it's this wonderful mixture of serialist music with funk rhythms, all grounded in really well thought out philosophies that bring together elements of jazz, African history, and black pride all together in this one musical practice. So Ed Bland is definitely one of my biggest heroes. And then another big hero of mine is Tori Amos. She's a piano singer songwriter who I've been obsessed with since high school. Okay.
0: (laughs) Most transformative performance experience?
1: So I hate to be prideful or to toot my own horn, but last year when Dr. Unmi Ko was piano soloist in the world premiere of this concerto that I wrote for her for piano and percussion ensemble, she brought that piece to life in a way that I did not expect. And everyone involved in that performance actually just really brought that piece to life. It's a difficult piece because it deals with women being disrespected. And Dr. Ko told me her story as a pianist, as an international pianist, being in certain situations where she wasn't taken as seriously as some of her male counterparts. And I basically wrote this piece For her to say that she is the solution to this problem because no matter what situation she's in, she's always super professional. She's always a better pianist than anybody else in the room. And she continues to create and commission pieces and play everything with such a high level of artistry and sensitivity. So watching her play this piece and get into this mindset and just kill it watching everybody just kill it that was one of the most transformative experiences for me
0: yeah that's thank you for writing a piece like that I think every woman listening will relate to that one of my questions though which I didn't realize to ask since I guess you're my first composer on the podcast oh wow (laughs) what is it I mean as a kid I tried a kid as in like in high school I was like let's see if I can (laughs) compose and I like started to write a cello concerto and I started to write a string quartet and I brought the string quartet to some friends I gathered it wasn't like a professional thing but I remember the feeling of just complete terror of hearing my piece performed not on MIDI because it just wasn't coming to my own realization of what I was hoping it to sound like and Mm. like since then have never composed so one of my questions is what is that like for you to hear your own piece back
1: oh I think that's the best part of being a composer actually (laughs) but I have to say because I started composing in a time when MIDI was horrible you know and MIDI kind of still is horrible but I started using Finale 2000 so MIDI was just not ideal at all. I can't imagine. Yeah, you know, so I've never really relied on MIDI to give me a good sense of what my piece sounds like. A, and B, if anybody takes a look at some of the scores that I've been creating over the past five years, you'll realize that MIDI is just impossible to realize these scores. So I always have this idea of how the pieces will sound in my head that MIDI just can't ever replicate So when I hear people, even in that first rehearsal where they're not the tightest, the most together, the most confident, but even in that first rehearsal, I just think, oh, yeah, this is great. This is the best part of being a composer. Now I just have to tweak it a little bit. I have to tell you to just listen out for that B flat, listen for this rhythm, whatever. And I know you'll be good to go, but I just love that feeling. Okay.
0: (laughs) next piece you'd like to learn, but you could say it as a pianist or you can say it as any upcoming composition ideas that you have. Yeah. So
1: the next piece that I would really like to learn, The Intimacy of Harmony by Jonathan Bailey-Holland. It's this really beautiful piece that has these really complicated chords and then it has this swelling left-hand gesture. And the pianist that really slams this piece out of the park is Sarah Bob. Yeah, she plays it often and very, very well.
0: You did it! Congratulations! You made it through the Spitfire!
1: Oh my gosh. Great.
0: So Anthony, can you tell me about how you got into composition or even how you got into music in general? What is your backstory and how has it transformed you to the person that you are today? When I was
1: five years old, I would play piano melodies after my kindergarten teacher would play stuff on the piano. So there was a piano in the corner. He would play something and then I would just repeat exactly what he played. So he told my mom that I have a gift that should be develop. And my mom also took me to church every Sunday. So I was exposed as a young child to these incredible gospel pianists and wonderful natural musicians. Over the years, I ended up playing piano for the church services, for four choirs. I did transcriptions and arrangements for groups in my high school and at the church and for friends. Went to chamber music camp and everybody basically said, oh, you're going to be a pianist. But throughout this time, I was also composing piano pieces for friends and family and doing all sorts of other creative work as a composer. And I had no clue that I could go to college and major in music composition until I went to BU and got in as a pianist and met wonderful composers my age, one of whom said to me, you should definitely think about double majoring after I showed him some of my compositions. So so at the end of my freshman year at Boston University, I showed some of my compositions to the head of composition, and he said, yeah, I think you belong with the composers." <laughs> so I immediately switched my sophomore year, and that's how I basically became a composer.
0: Was that a weird identity transition for you, to kind of switch gears? Like, okay, it just felt very natural the whole time. Yeah,
1: it was one of those things where at the end of my freshman year, Year, Even though I was playing a Beethoven sonata, Bach, Prelude and Fugue, some Chopin etudes, some pieces by Ravel, whatever. I was also composing a scene of an opera.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, (laughs) you know, so. And I composed a tuba sonata. I composed two pieces for my friend Todd, who's a percussionist and specifically wanted some marimba pieces. So I composed a solo marimba piece for him and then a piece for marimba and piano that we both played. I composed a piece for oboe, violin, and piano for my friends at Chamber Music Camp. And the year prior to that, I composed this mock PDQ Bach type piece (laughs) called Piano Concerto for Orchestra. And it was supposed to make fun of Mozart because <laughs> yeah, I really didn't like Mozart at that time. But <laughs> I had been composing
0: all of these pieces
1: and I just thought, yeah, you know they're fun pieces, whatever, but no one ever said you should be a composer.
0: Naturally, it was just flowing out of you kind of thing. It wasn't like hard work for you to sit down and say, how, what am I going to do? Exactly, yeah. Nobody
1: ever sat down and gave me tips about my compositions. Actually that's wrong. When I was taking piano lessons in high school I remember writing some short piano preludes and my piano teacher did give me some tips about notation. She also gave me her music theory textbook from when she was in college. So yeah, I remember. I still have the Piston Harmony textbook that she gave me. And I remember being really excited going to the Boston Public Library because they have a facsimile of Walter Piston's office in the library. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. That's pretty <laughs> (laughs) awesome. Yeah, and they
1: played some Piston at Chamber Music Camp at Apple Hill when I was there, so I had this weird Piston vibe going on during my childhood.
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) I mean, when I think of Piston, I mean, there's a very specific language that kind of emulates that era of composition in America. Yeah,
1: Piston does belong to that era where composers in the United States took craft extremely seriously, you know, very rigorously. So So it's good to be influenced by that foundation.
0: Yeah. After BU, then what happened? Okay, so
1: after BU, I went to New England Conservatory and majored in composition. And then I started a DMA that I didn't finish at CU Boulder. But that's a whole other story. And in 2013, I moved to the Netherlands at the same time that I started Castle of Our Skins with my friend Ashley Gordon, who's a violist that I met doing my master's at New England Conservatory. And yeah, I went through this weird spot where not many people were playing my pieces and I was focusing quite a bit on Castle of Our Skin's development. But during that time, I still kept on composing and creating and challenging myself. And in 2017, I got this opportunity to be an artist-in-residence at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska. And it was there that I met a wonderful visual artist, professor. artist named Helena Metaferia who encouraged me to explore this performance art side of myself. So I added that to my practice and that basically brings us to where I am today. A composer, a performer, doing experimental vocalizations and performance art as well, and a social justice artist mainly through Castle of Our Skins but also through research and throughout my own individual compositions and writings
0: what was the genesis of castle of our skins and how is that developed now especially with you know the recent 2020 george floyd passing and all of this uproar which is you know again similar to the watts, the watts riots. riot yeah
1: definitely so castle of our skins started rather innocently, I would say. Ashley Gordon was in the Ensemble Moderne Academy in Frankfurt, and she was moving back to the United States. And she knew that I was about to move to the Netherlands. So she asked me if I would like to do a concert with her before I leave. And I said, yeah, of course, that would be great. And I even started writing a piece for us. It's actually a really bad piece. I'm glad I never finished it. And uh, and she had gotten the venue and everything, gotten a date. And so closer and closer to the date, I asked her, so what's up with this concert? And she said, yeah, I've been trying to get in contact with the people at the venue and they just haven't been responding to anything. Turns out the venue went bankrupt. And <laughs> that whole concert was just completely canceled. All concerts in that venue were canceled and they just didn't tell anybody.
0: Yeah. That- that yeah, seems it. very irresponsible.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Life of a musician, right? I mean, we're the last people to know, right?
0: That's right, right yeah.
1: So. We're the last people to get paid and the last people to get informed.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. So I said to Ash,
1: it's okay because I'm going to come home every Thanksgiving. So we should just do some concert around Thanksgiving time. Maybe we can play music by Black composers. And she said, that sounds like a great idea. So who are the Black composers? And we started to think and we could not think of anybody really. (laughs) I mean, between the two of us, we could name maybe eight or nine black composers. So we said, yeah, let's do some research. And we started doing research. Ash started to put together concert ideas and programming. And I started writing down names of composers whose music I wanted to explore. And she said, well, if we're going to do this, maybe we should just do a couple of different concerts. And I said, well, if we're going to do a couple of different concerts, and that's a series, so maybe we should have a website. And she said, yeah, we should have the title of the organization they said we should have a mission statement and all of a sudden this thing came together and seven years later we're still here (laughs) so yeah it's been a crazy ride our first season was one produced concert and one educational workshop which we still perform to this day it's called A Little History I wrote nine poems about nine different wonderful figures in black history throughout a long period of time. And that piece is for solo speaking violists. So Ashley Gordon, of course, is the solo speaking violist. And Ash gave me wonderful feedback, not only with the viola part, but also with the poetry. And then she put together these little quiz booklets and she put together these amazing storyboards with images of the people and little factual tidbits about every person that that is highlighted in A Little History. And she just performs the whole thing so, so well. So it really became this interactive educational workshop. And yeah, so we started with that workshop and this one concert called Love Affects. And throughout the years, we've been asked to do collaborations. So we've worked with the Longy School of Music, Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Keene State College in New Hampshire, Brandeis University, us. We've worked with the Handel and Haydn Society, with Museum of African American History in Boston, Roxbury Community College. We often have concerts at Hibernian Hall in Roxbury. We've worked with the YMCA of Greater Boston as well. We did a research project at Center for Black Music Research in Chicago, and Ash has participated in the 180 Degrees Festival in Bulgaria. I did a house concert for Castle Skins here in the Netherlands. And so... so it's
0: just, just it, incredible. I mean, I know that it wasn't a dream that someone had and you made it happen, it, that it was something that just... I would say it
1: bloomed like a flower.
0: Yeah, it just kind of came about out of necessity, right? A little bit out of
1: necessity, but also out of passion and a real drive to interact and engage with this mission.
0: Yeah, but just what you've been able to accomplish, even for an organization, Organization, seven years is actually not that long, yet you've been able to do so much. Yeah,
1: and we're super proud of these past seven years. We're one of the very few organizations in all of classical music today whose programming is over 90% Black. And even organizations who engage in this music don't have that high of a percentage of Black programming. And we also have had had composers engage with black history in other ways. So we put together a call for songs using words by black writers, and we put together a call for pieces that engage with black visual art in some way. So we've inspired composers to turn to black history and black art and various forms of black artistry and expression to be inspired and to create pieces for themselves. So we also in Invite dancers, visual artists, spoken word artists, historians, movement artists, all sorts of black artists to participate in our production. And that has been super rewarding. And it allows us to create these productions that do tickle multiple senses. So you're not just coming for the music, but you also will experience a poem. We also have wonderful receptions, so you're going to be culinary (laughs) (laughs) Satisfied. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) We throw down.
0: (laughs) If you are at all wary of coming to a concert, just come for the food, right? (laughs) Right? Yeah.
1: And we're not shy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing.
0: I'm also curious about how you're tying your multidisciplinary practice in your time at Berlin University.
1: Definitely. So this opportunity came at such a wonderful time in my career because I've been thinking a lot about how to engage more with Black history and with specific aspects of Black history. So my friend Cleo Montre, who is an excellent composer and mezzo-soprano, she sent me this call for this program at the Berlin University of the Arts, Universität der Künste, and this is for what they call creative research at the Graduiertenschule, the graduate school at the Berlin University of the Arts. And so I came up with this proposal to create a multimedia piece that focuses on the moment in Harriet Jacobs's life where she was isolated in an attic for seven years. So Harriet Jacobs was a writer, an activist, and she was unfortunately born into slavery. And throughout her childhood, she was at first taught to read and to write and was treated with some modicum of decency until her first owner passed away. And through some weird exchange of papers and documents, etc., she ended up being passed to this really horrible man who sexually abused her and so after a while she just couldn't take it anymore and she escaped when she first escaped she lived in a swamp and she got bit by a snake and she had to get taken inside and treated for a while and she realized that her grandmother who was a free woman and a very well respected person in Edenton North Carolina which is where harriet jacobs was born and raised her grandmother had this house that had this really tiny space in the attic and so harriet jacobs went to her grandmother's house in the middle of the night and they hid her in this attic i'm pretty sure the intention wasn't for her to stay there for so long but she ended up staying there for seven years
0: jeez Yeah.
1: And so my piece focuses on that period of her life and asking questions about her mental state, about how she survived, and how she came out of it so positive, and how after this period she was able to accomplish so, so much in her life. But how during this period, how did she come to terms with being separated from her children, and being separated from day-to-day activity. How did she cope with just being in her head 24-7, 365, basically, right? With very little interaction.
0: I mean, if we think that the pandemic has, <laughs> like, we can maybe get a closer glimpse at that, but it's not even anywhere near because it's like we now have Zoom and all kinds of technology to, or entertainment to keep us entertained.
1: Exactly. And this pandemic hit at a really weird moment because it then started to get me thinking about harriet jacobs and this moment of isolation in an even deeper way considering what the world is going through right now yeah and just made me respect Harriet Jacobs, of course, even more than I already did. And part of this project also is to examine what the brain physiologically goes through during moments of isolation and what the brain goes through after trauma through sexual abuse as well. So there are quite a number of different elements to this piece. I'm also engaging black women to write letters to Harriet Jacobs and get this type of contemporary reading of her story and a contemporary appreciation of her story as well out in an artistic piece.
0: That sounds so interesting. I... (laughs) can you let me know or let our listeners know when that's completed? And Yes,
1: there's no real set date. A significant part of the piece will be displayed in a gallery in September next year in Berlin. Okay, so and any then... of my
0: Berlin <laughs> listeners, you can go check it out.
1: Yes, definitely. So I'm trying to get a full performance of it in Boston with Castle skins in
0: 2023. Got it. So I'll book my t- ticket today yes (laughs) no that sounds really fascinating and i'm really excited to see the success comes from this project thanks me too (laughs) (laughs) is this a good time to take a break okay sounds good we'll be right back Welcome back from the break. So visual art, Anthony, how did you get interested in that? I'm
1: not quite sure when it first started. I do remember going to the RISD Museum in Providence, Rhode Island growing up quite a bit. And the big things to see at the RISD Museum are the mummy and the Buddha. So our elementary school classes would take field trips to the RISD Museum and spend all this time in the big Buddha room and the big mummy rooms. And we would take pens and charcoal and colored pencils and crayons and paper and try to draw both of these monumental artistic artifacts as best as we could as five to (laughs) ten-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But a really cool thing is that there was a Black woman community leader who lived about three to five-minute drive from where I grew up, and she had this program for black children her name by the way was Ruthie Correa and I forget when she passed away it wasn't too 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 long ago but her passing was a real blow to this community effort that she organized and maintained practically as long as I've been living and for even longer. And so she would do things like find scholarships for children to attend private schools and take art lessons and to get their ins in all of these different programs. So I remember taking art lessons at Rhode Island School of Design at RISD as a child because of these scholarships that Ruthie found. Yeah. I took clay classes and I still have some of those old masks hanging on my bedroom wall in Providence and I still remember my teacher Erin Oda, mad props to Erin Oda, and learning a little bit of Japanese from her she was from Hawaii, I remember seeing her license plate with a rainbow on it, and just learning so so much about visual art from her, and in these clay classes she would also take us to various buildings in RISD on the whole campus, not just the main museum and we would make sketches and imitate some of the techniques that we saw in the visual art. So I did have this educational and practice foundation of visual art as a child. And on top of all of that, I took art class in elementary school. Of course, I think practically everybody did. But Miss Russell was a pretty locally famous artist, practicing artist in Providence. And I would see her in the supermarket, at the hospital, whatever, and I would see her art as well in public spaces at one point she asked all of her class including me to just draw something very bright and big and unbeknownst to all of us she entered our art into this competition and i ended up winning a prize in this japanese art competition
0: It's funny, I'm sorry to interrupt your story, but I also grew up with art lessons and my teacher would do the same thing, would secretly enter my stuff into competitions. Like, wait a second. Anyway, so I I relate with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It
0: was so funny. And I got a medal
1: and then I had a certificate signed by Tony Danza of all people. Oh. Yeah, it was just a fake signature, of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I also remember watching Who's the Boss growing up. So I knew who Tony Danza was and I was really excited as a child. Yeah. So, I guess a little bit of that paved the way for me to just being excited about winning competitions.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say art in general or just. Well, that too. (laughs) But priorities.
1: Of course. There's this whole idea of creating something and having your creation not be in vain, you know, having some recognition from your creation that has definitely stuck with me all these
0: years. Yeah. sort of like making your mark in whatever art form that you do or whatever you do in life. Yeah. So you don't start off in art school or art lessons doing surrealist art or doing any modern art necessarily, right? I mean, you start off with the basics of shading and understanding palettes and yada, yada, yada. So when I asked you what your outside interest was for the podcast and you said visual art, and I said, okay, can you give me some I almost said composers. <laughs> Could you give me some artists that you're inspired by or that you particularly like? You gave me quite a few of them and many of them are contemporary art. So what is it about contemporary art that draws you in?
1: What I really love about contemporary art is that many artists working and living today draw upon some of the same philosophies that working contemporary living composers draw upon. Whether or not that's social justice or ideas on structure, on how to work with time, on space, silence, all sorts of different approaches to visual art can be applied and observed also in contemporary music as well. So I'm constantly drawn to contemporary art and I love traveling and going to a museum and seeing all of the art but especially some of the contemporary art because that is the art that influences me and my practice the
0: I see. Interesting. Yeah, there was a part of me that wanted to ask this question. Being a composer, I think oftentimes people say art and music are very connected of the periods of which they occur in, but oftentimes that art precedes music in that way. Do you find that there is a connection that way? And do you think that there is a delay when it comes to visual art to contemporary music?
1: Totally. In fact, one of the anecdotes that I tell my students all the time that really inspired me is when and John Cage created 4 minutes and 33 seconds. In an interview, he said, you know those white paintings by Robert Rauschenberg? Well, he did those first.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: And when you look at these trends in visual art compared to music, you always find that music comes afterwards. And a part of me, and I'm not saying this to be pejorative about visual art, but I think up until a certain point, visual art and temporality was much shorter. Nowadays, we have performance art where you can have somebody like Marina Abramovich do these performances that last days weeks months whatever or you have somebody like Lawrence Graham Brown or Wilmer Wilson or Holly Bass do these performances that last anywhere between 10 minutes to a couple of hours Dred Scott as well and these are temporal examples of visual art in the performance practice world but performance art wasn't really a thing until the 20th century so before then visual Visual art was you'd go to a space and you see this thing hanging on a wall or you see this sculpture in a space or you see this artifact somewhere. You see this 3D layout of something and the temporal element of it was missing. So in that regards, music has always had a one up on visual art. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I yeah. mean, because music transports you to a time and place, an actual environmental field, temperature. that's what you're saying, yeah. Not only that,
1: but music is a durational art form. You can't really have a Chopin prelude that lasts for half a second, right? <laughs> but we can choose to go to a museum and look at a piece of Rembrandt or Vermeer for half a second and the average time that it takes for us to look at works of art hanging on a wall is a fraction of the length of time that it takes to listen to all of Debussy's etudes or a symphony by Mahler or a piece by Julia Perry, right? So music has always had this one-up on visual art in terms of its durational element.
0: Well, can we transition to the particular artist that you mentioned of the spread that you gave me of the artists? They tend to also always have a huge importance on Black culture. How do you see a difference between each of these artists? I
1: guess you're asking me to articulate their individual practices.
0: And how they storytell, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is a question that I'm not sure if I'm qualified to answer, but I can definitely give you my interpretation of their work in terms of how I've responded to it. Sure. So with Carrie Mae Weems, she is one of the pioneers in photography out of any artist, black, white, Asian, Latino, European, whatever. And for me... What I get out of her work, both as a photographer and a multimedia artist, because she does have multimedia works as well, is this sense of capturing three-dimensionality. I'm not sure, I've never heard her speak about this as a personal aesthetic, but when I see her photos of herself when she travels and puts herself in these different situations, the whole collection of these works give me this impression that she is attempting to capture this three-dimensionality quality of herself, not only as a physical body, but also as an artist, a creator, a woman, a person, a member of community, a member of society, an American who travels, you know. She's really trying throughout the breadth of this work and her works on the whole to capture this multi-dimensional quality of herself. With Betty Sarr, she is for me so focused on archetypes and symbols. So she oftentimes uses Aunt Jemima and a washboard and a metronome and all of this print material, perhaps what somebody might call black propaganda, and she creates these three-dimensional artifacts that are just loaded with symbolism, but the individual symbolism then comes together to create this meta-symbolism and this meta-meaning that can foreshadow or perhaps send out a word of warning for black people and also for white people to not fall into these traps that everyone fell into during the times of slavery and Jim Crow, etc. So with Helena's work, so Helena is around my age. I don't know her specific age, but she's definitely around my age. And her practice incorporates collage which she's been really focusing on heavily, but also Performance art and video art, etc. And what I love about Helena's work is that she comments on white supremacy using black idiomatic vernacular or multiple black vernaculars. And through the commentary of white supremacy, both past and present and possible future, using these different vernaculars, she creates art that is Absolute art. And it's really hard for me to explain that aspect of what I think is her final product, but what I could try to do for your listeners is explain this one performance art piece that she has. So it's called The Seat at the Table, and there is all this talk about the whole concept of having a seat at the table. Not only from black people wanting to have a seat at the white table, but you also also hear, for instance, the log cabin Republicans or LGBTQ people who happen to be Republican, and many of them say, I just want to have a seat at the table, you know? And it's this desire for being accepted by a group of people that you probably don't necessarily want to associate yourself with. And this concept is definitely part of Black upbringing, Black history, in many, many different types of ways. And in Helena's performance she cleverly takes a chair and she positions herself in relationship to that chair in many different formats and it happens throughout time and it unfolds in very clever ways so in a sense she's taking this concept that has such a loaded meaning for black people and out of that she's creating absolute art which is what I love about that aspect of her practice.
0: I just looked this up as you were speaking about it. Can I read what she writes about it? Please. These video performance projects are a series of camera investigations in which I explore the constructs of identity as it relates to the body. In the videos, the audience becomes engaged in work that seeks to break the fourth wall, which I think that's probably what we gain from a lot of these fusion performances, right? And when I'm looking at one of the photos of this performance of a seat, she has some print on the wall that says if they don't give you a seat at the table bring a folding chair which i think is pretty amazing (laughs) like i feel like that should just be an idiom everywhere you know definitely and then the next one says and do you belong I do I do I do period so that is pretty powerful of course this was done in 2017 just for people's chronological reference as well yeah and I met
1: her in 2017 I tell her and quite a number of people that I wouldn't be where I am without her and without her practice and her guidance so it was great for me to have met her in 2017 and to still have a wonderful relationship with her and to Support her as much as I can
0: Nice have you collaborated with her at all Yeah yeah
1: we have we did a Video work together well she Created this video piece with Me in the piece and then I wrote a series Of pieces for A duo in Stuttgart And the last movement of that Piece is inspired by Helena Metaferia's work Particularly a seat
0: Cool okay so you've also given me a Fashion designer as a muse Duro Olau. And when I'm looking at his garments, like I love this fashion. It's amazing. (laughs) But it's very patterned and very symmetrical. And that was something that also caught my eye when I was looking at some other selections of artists that you sent me, like Piet Mondrian and El Anatsui. And with Anatsui, when I was reading about his art, he uses bottle tops and creates these art installations from that. And they're just beautiful. There must be something about the structure from these artists that draw you in and inspire you in some way or intrigue you, at least. Yeah, definitely.
1: I think all three of these visual artists and creatives have an eye for fashion, for placement, for structure, for space, for color, and for putting all of these elements in a wonderful relationship with each other. I don't want to say that it's necessarily imbalance because sometimes things have to be out of balance to be aesthetically proportional. (laughs) But with Duro Olowu, I first came across his stuff as a curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. He curated this exhibit and I was So fascinated by his curation for many different reasons. So the first reason was his color scheme throughout the exhibition. So he basically had the whole floor. And when you walked through each room... Each room had a different theme and a different color. So it was one of these vibrant exhibitions that just gave you all sorts of different feelings as you passed through each different room. Then the art was placed in a really clever way. So every room, of course, had this open feeling. So sometimes you were surrounded by the art when the room was a little bit close. But when the room was much bigger, there were things placed in space that made you walk around certain things and made your eye travel in a certain way. Some areas felt much more open than others, but there was this sense of proportion within the placement in space of the art. And then he, of course, told wonderful stories throughout this exhibition, which had a Chicago theme, but brought together art from all over the world. And then on top of that, I just sort of hinted at at this but he had art from africa from the middle east from europe from the states from south america from asia he had art from everywhere and he treated each artist with such dignity everything was hanged and placed and described in such a way that made all of the artists feel as though they all knew each other and hung out with each other even though of course the art was taken from a long period of time as well but for instance he had An artist from Africa who I think was 25 or 26, but the way that that piece was placed made it seem like that artist was working for 50 to 100 years. You know, I mean, the art was very sophisticated, but it was in a perfect dialogue with the other art that was hanging around it. So I was just so impressed by that exhibit. And another thing that was just so lovely to see is when you looked at the people walking throughout this exhibition there were people that looked like they were from india and from china and from taiwan from indonesia from africa from there was just a wonderful swath of cultural representation from the visitors and it just made me think of that stupid phrase you know if you build it they will come (laughs) you know people in the visual art world as well as the music world have all of these preconceived notions that Oh, if we program this piece by this African composer, then nobody will hear it. Or if we hang this piece of art by this African artist, nobody will come and see it. Well, how do you know if you don't try? And when you look at the people who are already doing these things, you realize that everybody who does these things has an audience. So it's just simply not true, right? Castle of Skins is a perfect example. We have audiences.
0: Well, that and also I think for me as an artist, I think it's my responsibility to be representative rather than say, oh, I'm catering to my audience. If they're fans of me, then they wouldn't trust me and trust that I would present programs that are going to be intriguing, you know? But I know that there are some people out there that program in fear of ticket sales. And I think that that's against art. Yeah,
1: I completely agree with you. And I do understand that there is a concept of alienating your audience by doing something that's so so radical and so antithetical to your mission or your practice. But I think if you're a responsible artist, then your programming would never ever do that. And your audiences always trust you.
0: It's also the setup. It's how you present it. How you pair pieces together. It's part of it. Yeah. It's it's not just, here's the painting like it. You have to create a story around it. You have to create the purpose behind it. Exactly.
1: And many times we have to do this because these artists who Have been around for a while, they're just not beloved by audiences. So, what we have to do is present the art in such a way that's a good introduction for the audiences rather than say, here's this thing, automatically like it. You have to present this music in such a way that is an introduction because these composers aren't beloved yet. But I'm just hoping one day that composers like Blind Tom and Margaret Bond will have that beloved factor to them so that we can just program their music and appreciate the beauty of the music without going into any political thing or anything deeper. Because at the end of the day, the music does speak for itself
0: right absolutely going back to some other people that you've mentioned i think at this point i've only left out a couple of them and one particularly stood out to me with some obviousness but in another way too which is ren huang but when i started looking at his work i should preface he is particularly known for his nude photography and it's all art none of it's pornographic by any means and it's like how do i keep this family friendly (laughs) without (laughs) because i want to talk about a particular piece that really got me it's the one where he has two men lying next to each other unclothed and their penises are exposed i guess do you know the photo i'm talking about yes with the roses This one really spoke to me in a weird way because at first I was taken aback by this photo because it is in your face. Like, okay, it's the maleness of it all. But at the same time, (laughs) as I kept looking at it, I started creating a story, thinking about how they're two lovers next to each other and that they are in their most vulnerable state communicating to one another, not in any sort of act just by lying next to each other. I mean, this is where, like, for me, I was shocked to personally come up with that narrative on my own. But I think that that is also what is so thought-provoking About his work. I also, as scrolling through Google images, I also saw this one photo of a woman that's naked but has a tulip coming out of her womanhood. I'm doing this so poorly. (laughs) I think it's
1: really interesting that we're even having this exchange in this way because, on the one hand, you're trying to use language that is friendly and safe and not too too bold. But what Ren Hong was doing or trying to do was to break down these types of communicative barriers, not only through his art but also for the society in which he was working in. Right. So his story is. Is really incredibly sad. He never left China even though he had opportunities to, but he loved China. That was his home. His friends were there. All of the models that he worked with were his friends. He himself was queer, but he had no inhibitions when it came to nudity. It didn't matter if you were a man, woman, whatever. He just loved you and loved his friends and wanted to take interesting pictures of his friends. Clothes or nude, whatever.
0: And he also also wasn't trained, too. No. That's what I found also fascinating. Yeah.
1: A, he wasn't trained, and B, he used really bad equipment. He didn't use a high-quality camera at all. <laughs> and he was a poet. But it was so difficult for him to work in such a conservative society. And his exhibitions kept on getting talked about horribly and taken down, even though he gained such a... A big international stardom, but the pressure got to him and he committed suicide really, really young.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was born the same year my sister was born, so it's in '87. Yeah, that was very really hard for me to read about him. And
1: he committed suicide in 2017.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I do encourage because looking at it as like I can derive so much from so little. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to bring that back into your compositions. Do you find this concentration of emotion and story to be? something that is influential in what you do? Definitely.
1: And before I talk about my compositions, I just wanted to say I love what you said about extracting so much within an image that isn't complicated at all. And in that regard, Rene Magritte also does this. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by his art, particularly one image called Clairvoyance Self-Portrait, where he is looking at an egg but he's painting a bird (laughs) you know it's these very simple concepts that he paints and he comes up with but you can just extract so much meaning from just an image with very very little going on even the whole of ceci n'est pas une pipe right (laughs) like People write term papers on this one piece of art and what it did for history and how it changed everyone's mindsets. and it's just one depiction of a pipe and text and that's all it is. So with that said, I definitely attempt in some of my compositions, not all of my compositions, to have this proportion or this ratio where there are very few elements within the music but the meaning is ex- extremely high. Either the meaning is high or the effect is high. One of the things that I'm very fascinated by is composing pieces for two or three instruments, but it sounds like four or five or six or seven instruments playing at the same time. And people will say, oh, you know, that's great that that piece that you had for, you know, string sextet or whatnot. I said, that's actually a string trio. <laughs> and they're like, what? What's going on? <laughs> How'd you do that? I love that. I love getting this hyperbolized sense of depth and this maximized sound from instruments and performers. And I think a lot of that does come from my love of René Magritte and from Ren Hong.
0: Yeah, we forgot one person. Oh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yes, that's right. He's part of the 27 Club.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Another artist, creative, who unfortunately passed away very, very young.
0: Yeah, from heroin, from a drug overdose as well. Yeah, which is so sad. Yeah, and I think
1: it's important to keep in mind the context of each artist. Who passes away at a certain age because Ren Hong's story, for instance, is so different than Basquiat's story. Basquiat was a superstar. You know, he at one point dated Madonna, and his childhood hero was Andy Warhol. And when he got big, he ended up collaborating with Andy Warhol. And I don't think it's that big of a coincidence that Andy Warhol died the year before Basquiat died. And one of the paintings that I'm obsessed with, by Basquiat is his series of paintings called Eroica. I actually used Eroica in one of my pieces for bass, clarinet, and marimba for the wonderful duo called Transient Canvas. And my piece which is called Scintillation 3, is a musical reading of this art while infusing Beethoven because the word Eroica appears 10 times within this painting. So I had to put Beethoven in, but I also tried to put in this sense of decline because this is one of Basquiat's last series of paintings. And the last piece in this series is the most Bear the most empty of the paintings. And he writes in the painting, heroes die, or man dies. And you could tell that Warhol's death was such a big blow to him. And then he ends up dying, you know? So completely different context than Ren, but still a tragedy, of course. Dying so, so young and being so full of talent.
0: Yeah. I think his art to me and amongst everyone is the most different. It's a lot more text-based, images on top of text.
1: Yeah, definitely Basquiat stands out in terms of being brash, but not vulgar in any way, even though there is this sense of vulgarity to his work. It's a weird type of vulgarity though, right? Because it's not an unapproachable vulgarity. It's very much so a palatable vulgarity. But there is something bronze, and brazen and in-your-face vulgar about much of his work,
0: not all of it. Yeah, I just happened upon this particular painting, (laughs) and I just discovered there's a devil in there. I was like, whoa! (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Well, is there anything I left out in talking about visual art and how it connects to you as an artist?
1: Not necessarily. I do want to say, though, that with El Anatsui, I first came across one of his pieces when I was living in Colorado at the Denver Art Museum. And they have one of the biggest examples of his tapestries that are made from bottle caps and all sorts of found objects. And I was also pleased pleasantly surprised walking the High Line one day in New York coming across this extreme Extremely powerful, subtle piece created mostly with mirrors, and that piece is also by L. Anatsui and it's called Broken Bridge 2. I don't think it's there anymore because the art in Highline rotates, it changes, but I was a part of the people who were fortunate enough to have been walking Highline and seeing this mirrored piece and just being drawn in to this rusty reflective piece of art that in a way belonged until you started to look at it and you realize how actually it stands out so el anatsui for me has this extremely unique relationship with environment and he uses that relationship to create these pieces of art that reflect his relationship with environment but also at least in my opinion in my reading make you question your own relationship to environment. And environment isn't necessarily something that I've tackled in my own practice or my own compositions. So hopefully under the spell of El Anatsui, I can do that in the future.
0: Yeah, that's a very potent question that we need to continually ask ourselves every day. Our relationship to our environment, because it's not just about nature and about what we do to contribute to global warming. It actually means more your day-to-day connectivity with people. It's a fundamental question of, what are places in the world too yeah definitely totally thank you again for introducing me to all these artists not only was it thought-provoking and eye-opening for me I hope that my listeners will also take a look at some of these artists can I ask you two final questions yes what in your opinion is the most common misconception of classical musicians and the classical music world? That
1: we are haughty.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. I have come across so, so many people who just think, oh, if you're a classical musician, then you think you're better than everybody else, and blah blah blah. And that's totally not true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, perhaps it was true in a big way in a certain period of history. And yeah, it's definitely true for some individuals. But on the whole, I think most practicing classical musicians, whether or not you're a musicologist, a theorist, a performer, a composer, whatever, we're just regular people who love Beyonce and Rihanna. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? I really just don't get this separation. I remember clearly one day When I was in undergrad, one of my roommates came home with a friend and he was a really cool guy. We were getting along so, so well. And then he said, so what kind of music do you like? I said, well, I'm a classical musician myself, so I really love classical music, but I also love Tori Amos and Ani DeFranco and Björk, whatever. And he said, oh, well, I love punk. And from then on, he just started. Stopped talking to me
0: I've had similar experiences like this I don't get it either
1: (laughs) You just were talking to me For at least 40 minutes With no problem And then you find out that I like classical music And you just stopped talking to me What happened? So yeah, maybe there is this element to the story Where he actually Is a little bit holier than thou When it comes to musical preference So maybe it's not just him Thinking that classical musicians are holier than thou, but I don't know, I'm suspect. <laughs> um, I've also had this experience when I was at New England Conservatory where I would go to so many CI concerts and jazz concerts, but I would never see the jazz or the CI people at the classical events, you know? And I always just thought, well, why? It's music at the end of the day and we all should be learning from each other. So yeah, I always just think, well, maybe they just think we're doing something that's better than anything,
0: but that's just not the case. We're not like that. I think that's a great answer Thank you And my final question After all the impact That COVID has done To classical music What do you think Is something positive That will enhance And carry on in our profession?
1: I think so many people now Have had forced lessons In video editing We're all video artists now Yeah (laughs) So I think when it comes to The increase in video content That's awesome I think that's a great addition But I've been telling So so many people people, whenever I'm invited to give talks or lectures in various different places online through Zoom, I try to tell the students that the box has been destroyed. We will never go back to the way things were. So in order for us as practicing musicians and creatives to thrive and continue, we need to think outside of the box. We cannot go back into that box. And I'm really excited about that.
0: Me too. Classical music has suffered from staying inside this safety net or whatever. And I'm really excited to see what happens. Great answer again. Are there any platforms or websites for our listeners to learn more about you or any other upcoming projects? Yes, definitely. So my main
1: website is anthonyrgreen.com and I unfortunately have not updated that website in a really long Long time. But that website does have links to my SoundCloud, to my Vimeo, and to my social media. I am mostly active on Instagram, and that is at p i a r g n o eight four. Lots of people, when they see the word Pargno, they think, "Oh, is that some fancy Italian word?" Actually, it's not. My initials are A R G, and I play the piano, so Pargno is a little bit of a portmanteau of my initials and my instrument. <laughs> and I was born. Born in 1984, so PRGNO84 is my Twitter, my Instagram, and my Facebook. And just PRGNO is my Vimeo, my YouTube, and my SoundCloud. And in terms of upcoming projects, I have quite quite a bit, so I don't want to take too, too much time saying all of them, but I do want to plug my project with Jason Harding. He is an extremely virtuosic pianist, now based in Utah. He plays with the Utah Symphony Orchestra, and he commissioned me to write a response piece, sort of a response piece, to the Concord Sonata by Charles Ives. And next year is the 100th anniversary sort of of the Concord Sonata. And so for Jason, I'm writing a massive piece called the Baldwin Sonata. And I'm using James Baldwin, his life, his philosophy, his works as a musical foundation to create this massive 45 minute or more solo piano piece.
0: Wow, that sounds incredible. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go ahead and press that subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews and ratings help this podcast be more visible to others and it's a free way to support this podcast another free way is to tell your friends and family about it and you can always become a part of the and Behind the Music Stand family by donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com Haydn Music Stand. Don't forget there's a Spotify playlist available that contains all the pieces we've discussed on the podcast it's all great music and the link is always in the description of each episode and right now there's like probably more than 600 or so tracks on there. You could definitely drive across country a couple times and still have music to listen to do you have anything on spotify
1: actually i do i think the piano concerto that i referred to earlier in the podcast is on spotify because that was just released and then i will have another recording released in january from the lowell chamber orchestra and that cd is called the dance suite
0: okay well we'll add you then onto the playlist nice (laughs) follow us on social media facebook instagram and twitter all at music stand thank you so much anthony for your time and your expertise on everything visual art and composition and thank you for being the first composer on the podcast as well and just thank you for being amazing
1: <laughs> oh thank you so much for the invitation it's been a pleasure and an honor to be your first composer and i hope you have more composers
0: in the future i need to get myself to <laughs> talk to some more composers <laughs> but anyways awesome. thank you so much again for being here and thank you for listening. Sushi, say bye. Oh, and she's her,
1: adorable. Her coat's
0: like that. Yes. Yeah.
1: Guinea pig realness.
0: <laughs> I love that. I'm going to call her that for now. on. <laughs> oh, that's amazing.